0: AFIO Now is presented by Northwest Financial Advisors, where our world revolves around you.
1: Hello, everyone. This is Jim Hughes with AFIO Now. We are a program of recorded interviews with former senior U.S. intelligence officers and those who are writing about them. Today, I'm delighted to say that my guest is both. Her name is Alma Katsu. She is an award-winning author with seven novels. She spent an entire career in the U.S. intelligence community, 25 years at NSA, 10 years at CIA, a couple of years at RAND as an intelligence analyst. A couple of the high points included being the national intelligence officer for SIGINT and directing one of NSA's uh, research labs. After 9-11, she did a couple of policy jobs, one at uh, the State Department and one at the Office of Secretary of Defense. She has a master's degree in, from the writing program at Johns Hopkins and a bachelor's degree from Brandeis. Alma, welcome to AFIO Now.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I never thought that I would be interviewed by AFIO.
1: Well, we're delighted to have you. If anything, we're a little late, so I'm glad that we're doing it today. Alma, you have a brand new book out. It's called Red London. What's it about?
0: So, this is the second book in a series, but it absolutely could be read as a standalone. It's got the same main character as the first book, Red Widow, Lindsay Duncan. She's um, a young, youngish case officer. And uh, she's just been sent to London to work her new asset, who was a very important asset. He's in Russian intelligence, but he's also extremely dangerous. So, they're trying to give her every opportunity to succeed. But the book opens with a home invasion that takes place. In the in Billionaires Row, which is a very posh neighborhood of London, where a lot of f- wealthy foreigners, you know, invest in property, and the home invasion takes place at the house of a Russian oligarch, Mikhail Rotenberg. Now uh, that the scene is seen through his wife's eyes, Emily. Emily is British. She's you know one of those impoverished aristocrats, and she's extremely frightened because. Her husband had always been close to Putin, so she assumed that they were sort of protected. But here, someone's attacked them. The book, however, is set in a slightly future time where Putin has disappeared. And he's been replaced by a new guy that nobody knows a lot about. He's also ex-KGB. His name is Victor Kasijin. And she's now Emily is afraid that this means that Victor um, you know, has something against her husband. So Lindsay's there in London to work her new, uh, handle her new asset. But she's asked by CIA and MI6 if she would do this other special mission. They want to try to get her in to assess and see if Emily can be flipped to sort of help them with her husband. They think They don't believe that Viktor Kisijin is a good guy. You know, he's saying all the right things. You know, Russia wants to be a good international citizen and all that. But they think he's up to something. And they want to take... Uh, Rotenberg's billions of dollars off the table. And they're all hidden, of course, in offshore accounts and that sort of thing. So they need somebody on the inside who can get access to that data. And they think Emily is that person. So that's the setup. We have Lindsay going into the nest of vipers, uh, getting very, very close to the Rotenberg, and then all of the the things that fall out from that.
1: Why at this juncture in your career did you write a, a spy novel, and particularly one about a female case officer?
0: Well, so this is the funny part. Most people who know me as a writer know me as a writer of historicals that usually have a horror or supernatural element to them. And I know that sounds kind of crazy, right? Everyone out there is <laughs> sort of shaking their head, saying, why didn't she start with spy novels? But when I started writing, I was still working. And I... Kind of got the impression that it would be sort of difficult, but I should also say i I when it comes to the writing, I think of myself as a writer first. I put a lot of effort into becoming a good writer, and so it wasn't just because I wanted to write a spy novel I wanted to learn how to write novels i it, that career was going pretty well. the first I had a couple books that were sort of big books. Um, but then when I retired, I was having breakfast with my editor one day, and she said, you know, I know you've always wanted to write a spy novel. Why don't you give it a shot? And I was thrilled, because you don't often get that opportunity. Once you're known as a writer in a particular genre, they like you to stay in that genre, because it's easier for marketing and publicity. It's easier to build your audience if you're just appealing to one kind of reader. So this was you know, they were really taking a chance on this, but I knew exactly what I wanted to write about. And hopefully we're gonna talk about what people in the business think of how spies are depicted in pop culture. But I really felt like there should be a place for a story about the women working in intelligence today, modern women, modern problems, because like I said, I had a long career. And I've just been so impressed by the women that I've worked with. I'll digress a little bit. You know, at NSA is sort of sad. (laughs) They're still a little misogynistic, but when I was coming up, it was very, very common for people to say, oh, I hate working for a woman boss, or I'd never work for a woman boss. Well, I'm proud to say that in my 35 careers, The best bosses I've had have been women, and I want to flip that story. I want people to understand that the women out there are every bit as capable and professional as the men who have been written about for decades.
1: I've actually talked about this on other interviews, but when I joined CIA in the early 70s, my first boss was a lady, and she is now a CIA trailblazer. Oh, excellent! So one of the things that we talked about off-camera... Was writing for different audiences. And what we discussed was writing for the kind of the insider group, those of us who are former members of the intelligence community, but also writing for a much larger popular audience. What's the tension there, and how did you try to straddle those different audiences?
0: Well, you know, like a lot of people who've worked in it, in the business, I was never a big fan of like spy TV shows and spy movies, because like a lot of us, we we know that they're, they take a lot of liberties with the truth. Some of them have absolutely no relationship to the truth, right? But the problem is, is that's, what modern audiences have come to expect. They've grown up on decades of James James Bond movies and now Jason Bourne movies and, and all the other ones. That kind of made me hesitate to write a spy novel. I'll just mention, I've been an independent contractor with CSI and they put out the journal for the study of intelligence. And they have a small team of, of retirees who review books and movies and TV shows and that sort of thing. And I used to sit in my office and just listen to them. They were scathing. <laughs> And you know what they had to say about, you know, this this new popular TV show or something like that. And I would just be like terrified because if I wrote a spy novel, that's the, you know, that's what I'd be up against. You can't help but sort of hear that inner critic in the back of your mind. So when I did do Red Widow, that was a, that, that was kind of in my four. I knew that I wanted to make it as realistic as possible while still getting past the PRB, but to make it entertaining enough for modern audiences, people who did, you know, who, who grown up on pop culture. Uh, I think we might talk about TV at some point and that's where I really learned some interesting lessons and in all this. So that's what I've tried to do. I was super pleased when Red Widow came out. I got so many like emails and texts from, for, you know, from retired folks in the business who said that it was the most realistic portrayal of what it's like, you know, to walk the halls at Langley. And that just made me so, so happy and so proud. Red London is a little bit a little bit more removed. It's a little bit more action-oriented and that sort of thing. But I think it is still fairly, fairly true to life.
1: Alma, tell our audience just a little bit more about the Russian oligarchs in London and kind of what a mess that has become.
0: This has been really, it's funny because I remember back in 1994... When the British Prime Minister, he created, yeah, how this whole problem came about is they created this new class of visas. So they would allow foreigners to stay in the country if they invested roughly up to a million pounds in the British economy. And they did this because they were in a horrible recession and they had been in an even worse recession slightly before that. So they really needed, you know, new sources of money. But at the same time, that's when the Soviet Union was imploding. And I was looking at basket case countries at the time. That was part of my portfolio. And we were looking at what was happening in Russia. And we were pretty scared. It was falling apart. They were trying to figure out how to make the economy work. The nascent political parties that they were trying to stand up didn't look so good, but the population was really suffering. You know, there was very high rates of disease, alcoholism, AIDS, all kinds of stuff. It was looking pretty dire. And in the middle of all this, we were seeing the guys who were recreating the economy, who were trying to start businesses, really what they were doing were grabbing a lot of, you know, state-owned things to try to privatize them, were the men who would become the oligarchs. And they weren't outstanding businessmen, upstanding businessmen, I should say, You know, they were mowing each other down. They were having gangland-like killings, you know, in order to secure businesses and that sort of thing. Well, the two things were happening at the same time, and it sure looked for all the world like the British knew they were inviting these guys, these new millionaires with new money, right, to come to England. And you had to ask yourself, was this sustainable? They're inviting this criminal class into their country, and I don't know what they— projected would happen, but it ended up, right, with the oligarchs and not just the oligarchs, right? You know, there's a lot of Saudi money there. There's a lot of China, Chinese money there. But but now they do have a sizable pop, Russian population in the UK, in London. The oligarchs are very dug into the economy. They're very dug into the real estate market there. And, you know, in the last couple of years, the UK really has come to see that they've created quite a problem for themselves. I mean, first there was in 2018, the uh, Sergei Skripal poisonings, which was a real wake up call uh, at how brazen Moscow was being. But then with the invasion last year, and they knew right away that they were gonna have to go to sanctions. I think they were more public in addressing the fact that they they knew they had created this problem and, and now they had to take some serious steps. So. That was kind of music to my ears because (laughs) this book was actually started in 2019. The situation has always fascinated me, but we all know that us old intelligence types can become fascinated with things that happened in the past that nobody today gives a hoot about. So uh, it actually ended up getting back in the headlines, so it's worked out for me.
1: So in that uh, same vein, I understand you had to do a little additional writing at the end because things in the public scene changed rather suddenly.
0: Oh, yes, that was terrible. I had turned the book in already, and then the invasion started. And like every other person who writes spy novels, we were all focused on Russia, but we were focused on what was happening at the time with just, you know, a little bit of what ifs, you know, but nobody predicted the invasion. (laughs) Right. So um, my editor looked at it, my editor at Putnam, and she said, you know, this isn't going to work. It's not going to be satisfying to readers because it's already sort of past that point. So can you rewrite it? And I said, sure. Rewriting is is the business, actually. So I did rewrite it. But if you got if you recall, the events on the ground when the invasion happened moved very, very quickly. And you know, the talking heads would be speculating about something one day and the next day it would happen. Right. I had to rewrite the rewrite I turned in, and I think I was on the next rewrite of that rewrite when I told myself, this is not sustainable. I have to get ahead of this, because it's generally 18 months from when you turn in your manuscript to when the book comes out in bookstores. So you can see I couldn't do this month after month. It's, it's just crazy. So I asked myself, what's the one thing that everybody wants to see? Putin disappear. What if I give that to them? But the cure is worse than the disease. So that's what gave me the idea to do this. And it's really made the book. It it got a lot of interest from like editors and, you know, because you're giving people what they want. As soon as I say Putin's gone, everybody gets a big smile on their face. But it gave me the opportunity to create a new villain, a delicious villain, Victor Kasijan, who hopefully will remain the Russian president, at least for a couple more books. So I get to really make him the villain of my dreams.
1: So you've had an interesting career writing a number of books, but I understand you've just launched on a brand new project. Tell our audience a little bit about that.
0: Oh, my goodness. There's actually been a lot of different projects. Are you talking about the one for Emerging Trends?
1: Uh, I'm talking about, I think you have a new uh, TV project coming up.
0: Oh, yes. So, yeah, sorry. You know, this is the business. You're trying to make hay while the sun shines, right? So as long as people are paying attention to me, I'm trying to launch all kinds of things. Like I did a story for a big video game company, and that announcement is going to come out soon. And. Just all kind, you know, whatever people will pay me for, basically I'll do. But TV has been something that I've really wanted to get into. So we were very lucky with Red Widow. Red Widow was optioned by Fox for a TV show. And as part of the deal, I was made an executive producer. So I spent two years in development with that. And it ended up not going anywhere, which is not uncommon. Uh, apparently only about 10% of properties that get optioned end up making it to, to photography. But as we were winding down the relationship with Fox, Red London had already been written and the advanced feedback from the editors and agents was that this was gonna sell for film, no problem. So I'm happy to report, I actually did talk to over a dozen studios over the holidays. And we had, a. towards the end, there were several that still wanted the project and we just closed on the contract. Or uh, it'll go into development for a TV series and and I'll be back as an executive producer. And I know that sounds really impressive, but I I really am not going to be a real executive producer. They have real television people for that. I'm getting to learn the business, which is super interesting. I don't know if you want to talk about what it was like to work on Red Widow in development, but that was a bit eye-opening.
1: I think what people would be interested in is what are some of the differences between being an established author, and then working on a TV project, what different kinds of things were you uh, called upon to do?
0: For the for Red Widow, and I expect for Red London, my role is mostly just to help the showrunner and the writers. The showrunner is like the head writer, the person who conceptualizes what the story is going to be about. And... Manages. I mean, sometimes the showrunner is the sole writer of the scripts. Sometimes they have a, a stable of writers that they give assignments to. So my job is to help them answer their questions, help them understand how intelligence really works. The ironic thing about that is television doesn't really care how intelligence works. I'm sure you kind of guess that based on the TV shows that that get put out. But it goes back to that tension. And one thing I found, because in the beginning I was very frustrated. I thought, I have this book. Why aren't they just following the book (laughs) for the story? But the showrunner wanted to change everything, change it in ways that I thought were not only unrealistic, but kind of cliche. And that's where I found that they do want a certain amount of, uh, what's the word, you know, repetition, redundancy, because that's what people expect to a certain degree. They want the same thing, but something new. The problem with TV is a lot of times you're governed. The showrunner and the producers aren't allowed to just have their vision. You constantly get notes back from the studio, and they want to see more of this, less of this. This scene doesn't work for them. In my case, we had an executive who acquired it who was very keen on it, but halfway through the process, he left. Fox was actually acquired at the beginning of all this by Disney, and it threw them in a complete tizzy, and it caused all kinds of problems. So by the time we were finally kind of rolling, this guy had left. There was a new head of drama while she liked the idea of a female-led spy series. She didn't really have a vision for it. She didn't know what she wanted. So we, I think we ended up writing nine different pilot scripts for her. And the tenor of the show changed from being fairly serious to being what I considered kind of silly, but you know, you get to that point and it's like, I don't care, you know, do whatever you want. You know, what's going to work on the TV screen, not me. Right. And and that's really the attitude you have to have when you sign on for TV or a movie, it's not your baby anymore. It's going to be a collaborative effort. And if you want to see it get made, you know, you have to go in and just try to make it the best story you and everybody else can make it.
1: Uh, That's an interesting story. We wish you lots of success. I'd like to uh, (laughs) change topics just a little bit. Um, Off camera, I mentioned to you that we have ourselves a variety of audiences, and one of our audiences is really an academic audience. You're a very successful former senior uh, female intelligence officer. Talk for a moment to young women out there who are thinking about a career in U.S. intelligence. What kinds of advice would you give them?
0: You know, it's interesting. One of the things I got to do uh, while I was at CIA was I spent a year as a recruiter. I was, because as as I, I'm sure it's pretty apparent, they like to have people who's done the job, actually done the job go on, going out and talking to audiences, uh, mostly at colleges. So I did get to talk to a lot of women, young women. Um, this was all in the Northeast about uh, what it was like to work and uh, particularly as an analyst. So a couple things. One is, boy, the people who are interested in a career in intelligence these days are amazing. You know, they really are the best of the best. And what surprised me was how many of them told me they tailored their life to make themselves good candidates to be selected for a job at CIA. You know, they learn multiple languages. They did a lot of foreign travel. They really tried to study their area of interest. They were grooming themselves, right? And we, you know, as old folks, we always joke that we'd never get hired today. We're not that good of a a candidate. So on one hand, you've got these these incredibly sharp, you know, young people, young men and women who want to join us. The thing that, you know, all careers have ups and downs and talking to people, especially the Hollywood people about... A career in intelligence, you know, in, in my books, I also look at the downsides of it, right? You know, a lot of is asked of us when we uh, attain security clearances in order to keep that clearance. Uh, we have to give up a lot of secrets to the agency, and we know that we're not always going to be told all the secrets in return. There's a little risk there. Um, often we're disappointed a little bit in our careers. So that aside, the thing that I'm most grateful to uh, the government for giving me this opportunity is I had an amazing life doing things that I never would have done if I had never joined intelligence. I grew up in a very small town in Massachusetts in a small, uh, not advantaged family. You know, we had a very narrow window on the world. And this was a long time ago, too, when girls were told, you know, you can't be good at math, you can't be good at science, you know, you can be a teacher or a nurse, that kind of thing. And I knew I didn't want to do those things. NSA in particular was an interesting place to start because NSA is super technical. I used to joke, you you can't even, like, cl- be a janitor there without knowing a lot about computer science and telecommunications. I mean, you know, like, up to here in it. And it amazed me that I was actually good at it. So I got the opportunity to do all these things I never would have tried. You know, we talk about the travel and that sort of thing, but it's more the investment in you and the skills and they believe you can do all these things. You know, I ended up being a fairly senior manager. I was a deputy office chief by the time I retired. I never would have predicted that I could manage, you know, a large cohort of people. The opportunities you'll get are really endless in the intelligence community. Don't you think, Jim?
1: I agree completely. Thanks very much. That's a great comment. Well, the book is Red London. I finished it last night. It's very entertaining and very current. I want to thank Almakatsu for just a delightful interview.
0: Thank you, Jim. This is so much fun. I love talking to you.